and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 3, Discovery Day. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Today, it's Discovery Day, August 16th, 1896. The big day. The day that kicked off the biggest gold rush the world has ever seen. The day that led to huge fortunes and heartbreaking anguish and disappointment. A day that's still celebrated in the Yukon today. As you would expect with gold miners, there are a hundred different versions of how the gold was discovered, who found it, and what happened next. But before we get to that, let's set the scene. It's been around 20 years since Jack McQuestion established Fort Reliance, six miles from where the Klondike River joins the Yukon River. That's about a third of the way along the Yukon River's course, from its headwaters not far from the Chilkoot Pass, and the spot 3,000 kilometers downstream where it pours into the Bering Strait over by Russia. The Klondike is on the Canadian side of the border with Alaska, thanks to a bit of a historical fluke. Seventy years before, when Russia owned Alaska, and Britain and its Hudson's Bay Company owned what's now northern Canada, negotiators for the two empires sat down in the Russian capital, St. Petersburg, to try to draw a border between their possessions in North America. None of them had ever been to the Klondike, and the whole region was literally a blank on the map at the time. So they settled on the 141st meridian, one of those vertical lines on the map, as the border. By the time of Discovery Day, this put the Klondike on the Canadian side of the line. Much to the frustration of all those American miners who would have to pay Canadian custom duties and follow Canadian mining regulations. Yeah, and celebrate Queen Victoria's birthday in May, of course. But by the time 1896 rolled around, miners had been scrambling over the Klondike region, which, by the way, is the size of a mid-sized European country, looking for gold, and sometimes, like the 500 or so men around 40 Mile by this point, finding it. 40 Mile was in fact a bustling community. Experienced miners by this time were known as sourdoughs, a nickname that came from their custom of using sourdough starter for the leavening in their pancakes and bread. Sourdough starter is hardier and works better than yeast in harsh conditions like the Yukon. The only problem is that you need to save a bit with the yeast in it and keep it alive between bakings. Sourdough miners would often have a pouch with the starter they kept around their neck or in their belt to keep it from freezing in the winter. Ione Christensen in Whitehorse still has her grandfather's starter, which has stayed in the family since the Klondike Gold Rush and still makes great pancakes. It sure does. Anyway, a series of gold rushes in the Alaska Panhandle and northern British Columbia have lots of people thinking there must be something big up in the Yukon. But no one's found it yet. Or maybe it's just not there, they thought but it was. And it was just a few miles from Fort Reliance. Here's how Alan Wright, in Prelude to Bonanza, put it, quote, The search for gold was to range far and wide throughout this area. Ironically, it was to reach its climax 22 years later, almost at the spot it began. Traders McQuestion and Harper had actually hunted moose at the very place that would become known as Discovery on Bonanza Creek. But sourdough miners didn't think the Klondike and its tributaries were gold-bearing due to their general appearance. They looked more swampy than a stereotypical gold creek with clear, swiftly moving water cutting through a gravel bank. Moose pasture was the dismissive jibe as they floated past headed to some distant creek to explore. Harper and Joseph Ledoux, described as a French-Canadian from Plattsburgh, New York, built a post at 60 Mile. Confusingly, while 40 Mile is 40 miles downstream from Fort Reliance, 60 miles is 60 miles upstream, just a bit past the Indian River. Fort Reliance and the Klondike River are basically in the middle of all this. Think of an area on a map about 100 miles across, with a big river cutting right through the middle of it. 
Now, we know all these creek and river names are confusing to the listener, so we've put a map by Wallace from 1898 on our website if you want to visualize it. Joseph Ledoux, who we met in the last episode as one of the early traders serving the growing numbers of prospectors in the Yukon, was a keen booster of the area around his post, especially the Indian River. Tappan Adney, the journalist who wrote that first-hand account of the stampede we told you about earlier, says that the miners in Forty Mile were so vexed by Joe Ledoux's quote-unquote lies that they almost drove him out of town. Then, in 1894, a prospector named Robert Henderson walked into Ledoux's post with just 10 cents in his pockets. Henderson was a Canadian of Scottish heritage from Nova Scotia. He was described as a quote, rugged and earnest, unquote, man in his mid-30s. He was also described as, quote, lonely and taciturn, unquote, and fanatically obsessing with finding gold. According to Adney, when Henderson heard Ledoux talking about good diggings on the Indian River, he said, quote, I'm a determined man. I won't starve. Let me prospect for you. If it's good for me, it's good for you, unquote. Ledoux agreed to grubstake Henderson. Now, grubstaking is a term they used back in the day. It meant that a trader was advancing without being paid supplies to a prospector who was going to go out and look for gold somewhere, and if everything went well, use that gold to pay back the trader at the end of the summer. Now, it didn't always work out, so there's considerable risk here. But nonetheless, Ledoux seems to have liked the look of Henderson and agreed to provide an outfit for him to head up Indian Creek and look for gold. Henderson found some gold in the bars along the Indian River. Not a huge amount but enough to make a day's work worth it, the kind of gold they likened to wages at the time. It was more than enough to keep Henderson on the Indian River instead of heading for 40 Mile or some of the more popular creeks. He was indeed a determined man. He once spent 16 days building a dam as a water source for sluicing, then worked hard for three days sluicing as the water flowed and earned only $13 for his efforts. Another time, he fell off a log and a sharp branch impaled his leg. This immobilized him in his camp for two weeks and bothered him for the rest of his life. But Henderson kept looking for gold. Henderson kept moving up Indian River, checking its tributaries. As an experienced prospector, he hoped as he headed up he would find less fine gold, like in the bars of a river, and more coarse, bigger nuggets of gold. Indeed, he found what they called leaf gold on Australia Creek, including a piece as big as his thumbnail. He was on to something. But if you look at Tap and Adney's map, which is also on our website, you'll see that Australia Creek is tantalizingly close to Sulphur and Dominion Creeks, which would become world famous for their gold in just a few years. But Henderson took the right fork up Australia Creek instead of the left fork that led to Sulphur and Dominion. Henderson then returned to Ledoux's post at 60 Mile, When winter came, he loaded his sled and returned to the Indian River, headed for Quartz Creek. This was 40 miles from the Yukon River, and, having no dogs, it took him 30 days. He worked all winter on Quartz, taking out $500. In the spring, he headed further up Indian River, towards Australia Creek again. He didn't find anything worth staking a claim for and returned to Quartz Creek. He worked his way up Quartz Creek to its origin. Where Quartz Creek ended, a sharp ridge rose up, obscuring the view of what was on the other side. It must, of course, be another creek. Henderson scrambled over the sharp ridge and dropped into a creek on the other side. He panned and found colors. Good prospects, in fact. Found colors is a term used when people find gold in the bottom of their gold pan. 
He went back over the divide and talked three of the other 20-odd men working on the Indian River to go back with him with whipsaws and materials to build sluice boxes. They staked a claim and named the creek Gold Bottom. The four men took out $750, or about $20,000 in today's money, divided four ways. Now, again, Henderson was tantalizingly close to the big find. If he had wandered just a mile or two west from the head of Quartz Creek, he would have dropped into the valleys emptying into what would be called Bonanza Creek. But, at the time, it was called Rabbit Creek, and no one had prospected it. Which gets us to August 1896. As we mentioned, a big gold strike like the Klondike is soon encrusted in myth and competing versions of the truth, especially when those involved have nicknames like Lion George Carmack. We're going to rely on the story pieced together a few years after the event by straight-shooting Canadian government surveyor William Ogilvie. Even his account may not be exactly what actually happened, but since he interviewed almost everyone involved not too long after the actual events, it's probably as close as we'll ever get. Okay, here we go. Henderson is running short on food and needs to make a trip back to Ledoux's post at 60 Mile for supplies. He does that, but on the way back, the Indian River water levels are too low to drag his boat upstream. So he decides to float a few more miles down the Yukon River to the mouth of the Klondike. He guesses, correctly, that his Gold Bottom Creek pours into the Klondike and he can get back to his diggings that way too. At a fishing camp at the mouth of the Klondike, he meets four people that still need to be introduced. Their names will soon be famous from London to San Francisco. First is George Carmack, also known around 40 Mile, as we've said before, as Lion George. An orphan from California, he came north in 1885, met and made friends with two First Nations men at Dai, Quiche and Kagooks. Quiche is more widely known by his English name, Skookum Jim, he was born around Bennett Lake and had family connections with both the coastal Klingit people and the Tagish nation on the Yukon side of the coastal mountains. In the 1880s, he worked as a packer on the coast, his legendary physique earning him the nickname Skookum, which means strong in Chinook jargon. He is said to have carried a 160-pound box of bacon over the Chilkoot Pass while packing for William Ogilvy at one point. This is more than four times what I pack when I hike the Chilkoot with all my modern fancy gear. And this spot is where he also met George Carmack. Kagooks is known also as Dawson Charlie or Tagish Charlie. He was a nephew of Quiche on his mother's side, and his father was Klingit. The fourth person was Shaw Tlaw, also known as Kate Carmack. She was Quiche's younger sister. She'd been married to a Klingit man, but her husband and infant daughter died in an influenza outbreak in Alaska. She returned home, where she met George Carmack. They formed a relationship, though, as Shaw Law would later find out to her regret, their marriage was never made official under Canadian law. Carmack and Shaw Law had been living at a trading post Carmack established on the Yukon River, about 25 miles above Five Finger Rapids, which is roughly halfway between the Chilkoot Pass and 40 Mile. He dabbled in trading, prospecting, and even mined a bit of coal for a while. The couple left the post in 1895, leaving a note on the door saying, gone to 40 mile for grub. Carmack's association with his wife, Keish, and other First Nations people made him suspect in the eyes of many miners, where racism was common. In addition to Lion George, many called him Siwash George, a derogatory term. He was not considered a serious prospector in the saloons of 40 mile. There are various explanations for why Quiche and Kagooks were at that fishing camp at the mouth of the Klondike River that day in August 1896. 
Some say they were old friends of Carmack and were spending time with sister and aunt, Shaw's Law, as well as harvesting salmon and planning to cut some trees to sell in the new mill at Forty Mile. Others say that Quiche and Kagooks had traveled down the Yukon River since they hadn't seen Shaw's Law in some time and were checking in on how she was doing with her husband. In any case, Henderson came ashore. What happened next is disputed. Ogilvy's view was that everyone agreed that Henderson told Carmack about the gold find on Goldbottom Creek, as he had done with Ledoux and the other miners he'd come across. He invited Carmack to come and stake a claim. Now the first controversy comes in. Carmack agreed, then said he would come with Cache and Kagooks. Henderson apparently objected strongly, saying he didn't want his creek staked by First Nations people, especially ones from the upper Yukon. Offense given, offense taken. Henderson then headed up the Klondike River, passing the mouth of Rabbit Creek after about a mile, and kept going for Goldbottom Creek. The group lingered at the fish camp. Cache went up Rabbit Creek to look for trees for the sawmill and spotted surprising amounts of gold. But still, the group didn't go prospecting. A couple of weeks later, they finally decided to go to Henderson's claim on Goldbottom and see what was there. Critically, they decide to take a different route. They head up Rabbit Creek. Panning from time to time, they find 10 cents of gold per pan, which is considered pretty good. Cache and Kagooks later tell Ogilvy that they talked to Carmack about whether he was going to tell Henderson about this, but Carmack said to stay quiet about it until they'd seen what Goldbottom was like. After an arduous slog up Rabbit Creek through thick brush, they drop over the ridge and find Henderson on Goldbottom. Once again, the groups do not get along. Cache and Kagooks are out of tobacco, and they ask to buy some of Henderson's. According to Ogilvy, quote, Henderson, either through shortage himself or dislike of the Indians, or both, would not let them have anything, though Jim and Charlie both assured me they offered to pay well for all they could get, which Jim was both able and willing to do. They check out Goldbottom and realize the gold was richer on Rabbit Creek and decide to leave. Here's another controversy. Henderson later claimed that Carmack promised to send back word if he discovered gold somewhere else. Carmack denied this. Alan Wright in Prelude to Bonanza put it this way, quote, The promise, if it was made, was certainly never kept, unquote. Low on supplies, on the way back, Keish forges ahead along Rabbit Creek to see if he can shoot a moose, which he does. As he waits for his friends, he spots more gold in the creek. After the group has enjoyed a moose dinner, Keish points out the gold. They stay for two more days, finding even more gold and deciding to stake claims. This is where we can stop calling it Rabbit Creek and start calling it Bonanza Creek. Enter another controversy. Quiche, as the discoverer of the gold, is entitled under Canadian law to two claims. The way the system works is that each claim is 500 feet long along the creek and 2,000 feet wide. The first claim will be called discovery, and the discoverer can also stake a second. After that, other people can stake claims upstream and downstream. These are numbered one above, two above, one below, two below, and so on. But when Quiche tries to stake two claims, Carmack steps in and says that he, Carmack, should be the one that stakes discovery, arguing that the Canadian government won't recognize Quiche's claim since he's First Nation. They argue and finally compromise. Carmack will claim discovery for himself, but Quiche will own half of it. Carmack will claim the second claim, number one below, Quiche will take number one above, and Kagooks, number two below. Shotla did not stake a claim. 
They then poured the first gold they'd panned into a Winchester rifle cartridge shell and made a small raft out of the saw logs they'd previously been working on for the 40-mile mill. Carmack and Cogooks then proceeded to 40 Mile to register their claims officially with the Canadian government. When Lion George told the other miners about the find, they scoffed. Everyone knew that Carmack was, in Alan Wright's words, the Yukon's most casual prospector. Then Carmack poured out the nuggets he had found on a saloon counter. The rush was on. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. Thank you.